0: Good morning and welcome everybody. You are listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across the country, wherever you are. We've got something very, very special for you this morning. Uh, today in, in, in New South Wales, it is a public holiday, the Queen's birthday weekend. So I hope you're all having a wonderful weekend. Uh, we're also on holiday too, believe it or not. Right now, uh, you know, I, I did this I did this. Last week, So, um, look, the point is, everyone needs a holiday, and we're taking holiday too, but you're not missing out on The Breakfast Show with Lyle and Liam. Of course, this morning, we're going to go back in time. We're going to give you a special double dose of Encounter with God, Uh, so make sure you stay tuned for that. That's going to be coming up very, very shortly. Um, But, yeah, I hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Keep safe. Hopefully, uh, as restrictions ease on the, uh, as as we come out of the COVID nineteen pandemic, you're all getting to see family and having a good time over the weekend. So, um, yeah, I just pray that God's with you during this time, and I pray that you're having a very very good weekend. And uh, yeah, enjoy the show we've got for you today. Coming up next, though, we've got My Lighthouse by the Rend Collective.
1: In my wrestling, in my doubts, in
0: my failures, you won't
1: walk out. Your great love will lead me through. You are the peace in my troubled sea. Whoa, you are the peace in my troubled sea. In the silence, you won't let me. Your truth will hold Your great love will lead me through You are the peace in my troubled sea Whoa-oh. You are the peace in my troubled sea.
2: Show. Sure.
0: There was Wren Collective with My Lighthouse. Now we're going to move on to the double dose of encounter with God. Here we go.
3: Getting into our Bible study to, for today, we are looking at... Uh, we're going to spend this uh, the next uh, three months looking at different ways to study and understand the Bible. Today we're looking at the Bible as history. Now this is something that fascinates me, particularly when you read ancient documents. The ancients did not record... History. Even people like, um, and his name has just gone blanked out of my mind at the moment, but we'll be back in just a moment, but the Greek who is called the father of history is also called the father of lies. And um, I've got another Greek name in my head. The the right one won't come out. Is it
0: one of the Greek gods? No. No? Okay, never mind. Greek historian.
3: And so when you read his histories... Aristotle. Aristotle, um, not Aristotle. Okay. Um, you got Xenophon. Xenophon's right up there as well. Uh, but these guys, you know, they did not record history. They they wrote movie scripts. They wrote about victories, but they did not record history. If you go back further from them, uh, and, and these were the first guys to ever record defeats of their own people, of any kind, but, you know, strongly flavoured it their direction uh, in a way that you know would would suit their narrative. Yep. You know, you read read about the uh, the 300 at Thermopylae, which was a crushing defeat for the Greeks by the Persians, and it has always been passed down to us as being you know a heroic story. That's because we have the Greek version of it, because the Persians didn't really bother writing much about it because they're like, yeah, we went to the Thermopylae, we we smashed the Spartans and killed their king. That's pretty much what they wrote. Uh, whereas the Greeks turned it into a heroic tragedy and wrote a movie script about it. There you go. Uh, in, in in vivid colour compared to what had been done in the past. You know the Syrians and the Persians and the Babylonians. You know they just wrote about victories and, and the Egyptians. You know you've got um, you've you've got famous pharaohs who fight these you know incredible battles and go back and carve on their temple walls about their great victories that they won, when you actually cross-reference the accounts, you find out that they were lucky to escape with their lives. Yeah. But they're not going to say that, and they're not, certainly not going to say that to posterity. They're going to be like, yeah, we went up there and we absolutely smashed the Assyrians and we did this and we did that and we did the other. And it's like, yeah, well, you actually were very, very lucky to get out of there alive um, and you know it's quite different reality is quite different from what is written down this is where the bible is very very different mm. the ancients recorded victories yeah the bible records history mm and when you come to the bible pretty much the very first story that you have is the story of a defeat yeah Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you know, gives a backstory for it, and and it, it the that's whole right. Plot line, your creation story, which you could say, well, that's a that's a victory story, but that's a backstory to the first great defeat. Yep. Um, the reason that that story is being told is so that we can talk about a defeat, a defeat of God, a defeat of God's people, a defeat of you know Adam and Eve, a defeat of humanity. It's a defeat. And then this is a theme that you're going to find that runs from one end of the Bible to the other. And it's a theme that really does focus on the weakness and the corruption of human nature. Mm. So your other histories are going to exalt human nature and they're going to teach you that, you know, God is within you. You need to get in touch with, uh, you know, you need to be true to yourself. Uh, We don't need to be true to ourselves, we need to be true to Jesus Christ. but the Bible teaches you know you you've got to, you've, you've got a the solution to life to happiness to harmony the Bible teaches you is found outside of yourself in Jesus Christ outside of the Bible you're going to find that the solution to all of those things is within yourself and within what you do as a human being your actions as a human being it it does draw a very very big contrast with every other ancient document and every other ancient religious document. So if you look at uh, Eastern religions, if you look at Buddhism or, or Hinduism, for example, that have come down to us in modern times, but if you particularly look back you know, at the ancient ones that no longer exist, you're going to find that these are cyclical religions. Mm. The Bible and the Abrahamic religions are linear religions, and so you're going to find that the Bible you know, begins with perfection, moves on to sin, finds the solution in Jesus Christ, the consummation of that in the second coming, and goes back to perfection again. Yep. It's this small dip into pain and suffering that the world, that the universe has to have so that it can never, ever have a, it again. A bit of reality. Yeah, well, well a, 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 an alternative reality. Yeah. Because reality for the universe really is... Sinlessness. Or reality for us,
0: something that we can relate to.
3: Yeah. So the Bible is going to tell a story that is real to us, but it's going to tell it in a linear fashion. You move from this point to this point. You move from where the problem comes in to where the problem is solved. And the Bible story is the story of that whole process of how the problem is solved. You look at other religions and you're going to find that it is cyclical. So you start at this point and you cycle through and you're back again. And then you cycle through and you're back again. And everything in nature, you know, is seen to have this, you know, this life, death, birth cycle, etc., etc. And so the religions that were nature based rather than God based came to be cyclical religions rather than linear religions. And as a cyclic, cyclical religion, they have an environment in which sin and pain and suffering actually lasts for eternity. Mm. Whereas the Bible view is that there's going to be a time when there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more crying, no more tears, any of those kind of things. It's going to be gone forever. Um, sadly, a lot of paganism has crept into Christianity. Mm-hmm. And one of the areas in which it has crept into Christianity, of course, is the uh, doctrine of eternal hellfire. The Bible doesn't teach eternal hellfire. The Bible teaches hellfire. But the Bible says that you'll be turned to ash. Last time I checked ash, nobody who'd been turned into ash was still alive. That's what the Bible says, and we could look at many passages on that. Malachi chapter 4, is uh, just read the whole chapter. There's like, what, six verses in it? Uh, It's very, very clear on this subject. And so we have this... Cyclical view of eternal hellfire that has crept into Christianity. Whereas, if you choose not to be a follower of Jesus Christ, if you say, No, I don't want Jesus as my friend, then Jesus is going to set you on fire. You're going to burn, and you're going to burn forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, eternally with no end. And, you know, every now and then you just sort of get turned over and roasted on the other side, and then turn and ro- over and roasted on the next side. And that's how. It's going to continue for you um, as somebody who chooses that you really don't want Jesus as your friend, according to you know the pagan traditions that have entered into Christianity. Um, as, as you know, this is all as a result of pagan influence. Mm. So this is what we've got. We have a linear versus cyclical, and the Bible is linear. The Bible takes us from perfection to perfection. Takes, the Bible takes us from paradise lost to paradise restored. We're going to look at some of the key moments within that as we work our way through this particular Bible study. We're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to be looking at, this morning, in particular, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because nothing more clearly illustrates the linear nature of how God is dealing with the sin problem and that it will be gone forever than the resurrection of Jesus.
4: You're listening to Faith FM,
5: positively different radio.
3: Okay, so that was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What have you got for us there, please, Liam? Uh, Which verse? Uh, Let's start in verse 3 to 5. Let's look at Paul's testimony here in relationship to the resurrection of Jesus.
0: Verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died.
3: Okay, so this is an interesting statement by Paul. Why Why would we trust this statement right here? What evidence do we have within that passage that we should trust this statement? Uh, that people saw him. Okay, but... The- but if I'm going to play the devil's advocate here for a moment, I could say, yes, he is saying that uh, there were eyewitnesses, but why would we believe those eyewitnesses? Why would we believe his account that those eyewitnesses were actually a real thing? I mean, he's writing about it. He's writing about it You know, to the city of Corinth. He could be in any part of the world. He could be vastly separated from those people at this particular time. He, he makes a statement here within this passage that gives authenticity to it. The scriptures said it would happen. Yeah, and other people are going to say, yeah, but we have our own scriptures. I'm playing the devil's advocate here, yeah? I give you a hard time. Uh, and so, you know, y- y- your Buddhists will say, well, we've got our scriptures. Your Hindus would say the same. Uh, the Muslims would say, we've got the Quran. There's something here that gives this a ring of authenticity. Why would we believe the fact that he is claiming there are eyewitnesses? If you were somebody who was alive at this particular time and you were sceptical but you were motivated to find out whether this is true or not, there's something right here within the passage. Which bit? (laughs) Okay, so here's what you're going to find. The Bible says, or Paul says, the majority of whom are still alive to this day. So here's the thing. If you are going to create a legend, you do not create a legend within the lifetime of the people who are a part of that legend. Yeah, you can't do that. That's impossible, because if it's just a myth, well then you know you've got all these people who are actually eyewitnesses against that myth. Mm. Paul here is written, writing within a very short period after the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ—forty years at the very, very most. Most likely, you know, twenty years from the um, the time that Jesus was resurrected. and he makes this statement. He's like, there's all these eyewitnesses, the majority of whom are still alive. In other words, what he's doing is he's throwing out there the challenge. If you don't believe me, if you think this is a legend or a myth that I'm speaking about, then you can go and personally interview... All All of these eyewitnesses, more than 500 of them, and only a few of them have passed away. So there's maybe, you know, at the very least, there's going to be 450 of them. That's a lot of eyewitnesses who are going to give you corroborating evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. And this becomes really important because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to this concept that the Bible is presenting a linear message of salvation because Jesus is at the very center of that uh linear message the bible takes you from sin to the solution to sin which is the death of jesus christ which is meaningless without the resurrection of jesus christ mm. and so the resurrection of jesus christ becomes incredibly important to all of us romans chapter 8 and verse well actually let's let's before we go there let's uh while we're in first corinthians chapter 15 go down to verse 51 to 55 because paul begins This is sort of like a little sermon with a sermon. It's uh, a section within the book of uh, 1 Corinthians that takes you through to the end of the book. And it begins by talking about the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. How does he end this section?
0: Okay, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will also be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting?
3: Okay, so the Bible moves us right the way through Paul moves us right the way through from the uh from the uh, from the resurrection of Jesus, from the crucifixion of Jesus, right through the way through to the second coming of Jesus and tells this whole story of, you know, paradise lost to paradise restored, really that's what we're dealing with is the, is the is the story of the Bible. Now, moving back to the resurrection, I think we need to spend a little bit of time on this. Why do we as Christians believe in the resurrection? I mean, Paul gives this statement right here, and it certainly would be a very, very brave statement to make if the resurrection had not happened, because it could be very, very easily disproved. Mm. All you had to do at that time was was to go to Palestine and to start tracing through every single person who claimed to be an eyewitness of Jesus and just interview them. And sooner or later, you would know whether this was true or not. Let's say there's 450 that are still alive, and and that's a conservative estimate. But let's say that there's 450 out of the original 500 that are still alive. Uh, By the time you get finished interviewing them, you're going to know whether this is a real thing or not. Yeah. What other evidences do we have that this was actually a real event? You know, we often talk about the empty tomb of Jesus. So every other great religious leader has a tomb. Jesus has an empty one. Mm. There's no one there. What other evidences from history do you think we might have that that's an actual real event? Or do we just take it on faith? You Do we believe it because we believe it
0: because we believe it? Because we believe it. Well, I... the, the resurrection of Jesus it, it sort of if Jesus hadn't have died it would have proved that Jesus is human yeah, that's right which it did it proved that Jesus is human Jesus dying proved that he was human yes but him raising from the dead proved that he was also God that's right and I th- I don't th- what what point is there of a Messiah that isn't God th- yet yeah, none yeah.
3: That, that isn't the Messiah which raises an interesting point in, as far as evidence for the resurrection goes because really the issue that comes out of that is the is the evidence from cause and effect mm. uh, in this case Christianity is the effect yep Christianity is the world's largest religion Christianity within three hundred years was the dominant religion in the Roman Empire uh, the ancient mystery religions of Egypt and Greece and you know France and Scandinavia within you know 500 years had vanished entirely the middle east mm. you know gone they, they just ceased to exist as christianity took over and that is the effect that's a massive effect that's an effect that is just off the charts whenever you have an effect there is a cause yeah and you have to find out what that cause is you have to have something of incredible magnitude to create an effect that is that large. No other religious leader has created an effect that that is that big Mm. and in that short of a space of time. Mm. um, There have certainly been some very influential religious leaders, you know, Confucius and Buddha and so forth, but no other religion can match the rise and the spread and the influence of Christianity. Mm. So if you are going to have an effect that is that big, you have to have a monumental cause. Mm. And one Jewish carpenter preaching for three and a half years is just not a big enough cause to explain it. The resurrection, on the other hand, yeah, that's kind of rare. That's something that you don't see happening on a regular basis. That is something that I'll probably uh, hazard a guess that you've never seen take place. I certainly have not seen it not, take place. Not particularly, no. And that is a cause that is big enough to create an effect as big as Christianity. Yeah. So that's that's that's, that's definitely a line of, uh, of evidence there that is very much worth uh, pursuing in relationship to the reality of the coming of Jesus and the fact that he gave his life for us and that this was central to his plan for dealing with the problem of sin. We're going to come back and talk about this a little bit more. There's some other great things out there. If you want to give us uh, chip in with your thoughts, give us a call, 1-800-324-843, or text us on 0491-064-669.
6: We have this hope that burns within our hearts, hope in the coming. Faith that Christ alone imparts Faith in the promise of His Word We believe the time is here When the nations far and near Shall awake and shout and sing Hallelujah. Is key. We have this hope that burns within our hearts. Hope in the coming of the Lord.
3: Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking about the resurrection of Jesus as part of the linear story of paradise lost to paradise restored, that the Bible gives, which is different from the cyclical view that other uh, major world world religions follow, where you simply cycle through the same kind of thing for the rest of eternity, good, bad cycle, um, etc. We were talking about the resurrection a little bit earlier, and Paul's testimony in relationship to the resurrection, and how he carries that testimony through to the second coming of Jesus' Which, of course, is where Paradise Restored comes in, but that resurrection does give us a glimpse, gives us a small glimpse of what it is, uh, what what the um, of, of the fact that we can trust what the Bible says in relationship to the second coming of Jesus. Okay, so this is something else that's interesting. We were talking about the Bible as history before and how that all ancient documents outside of the Bible, whether they are historical or religious, record victories. They don't record history. There's no record of history from the ancient world. There is just a record of victories. Herodotus was the guy I was looking for. I had Hippocrates stuck in my head, and I knew that was wrong. Herodotus was the father of history, otherwise known as the father of lies, because he was kind of a movie script writer rather than a historian. Anyway... We find that, um, coming back to the story of the empty tomb, the first account of the resurrection and the empty tomb of Jesus comes from probably Mark's gospel. Mm. And then you have it in the other gospels as well, and what's significant about the story is its simplicity. And so when you read, um, if you read a myth... You know you 're a legend for instance, these are always going to be quite complex and detailed, and you 're going to have you know the wild and the weird and the wacky that is going to you know read read the odyssey or something like that and you 've got you know one headed one one eyed monsters yeah. and you know all kinds of all kinds of strange and weird things that are happening and that 's because this is a myth it is a legend read any legend you 're going to have the same kind of uh, issues that are coming on down through that particular legend. When you read the story of the resurrection of Jesus, mm. it's very simple, it's very factual, and it lacks legendary development and embellishment. So, a lot of legends have a basis somewhere in history. Mm. But somebody's taken a story and they've just sort of added to it, and then they've, you know, repeated that story. It's been passed down orally for several generations, typically. Um, by the time that you know, by storytellers, and storytellers, you know, the art of story storytelling, you know, it's a true science. Yeah, yeah. And when you're telling story, you have to, telling a story, you you're painting a a word picture in people's minds. Mm. As you're painting that word picture in people's minds. When you tell the story, and you're building that word picture, there are going to be elements that you're going to add to it to make it a picture. The next time it is told by, say, for instance, you know, if you're the if you're the campfire storyteller, and your son takes over, he's going to add his flavour to it. The neighbouring tribe's going to hear it from you, from you, and they're going to add their flavour to it. And within a very short space of time, you have this whole legendary development. You have all of these embellishments that are coming in from each different storyteller, and that's going to happen before the first time it actually gets written down. Mm. Once it's written down, it is codified to a certain extent because when it gets written again and 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 again, once again it's going to be embellished, but at a slower pace. And so we find this with all ancient stories we find huge discrepancies you know in in one person's version of a legend compared to you know somebody's somebody else's version of exactly the same legend yeah and when you read the bible there is no great discrepancies there is no legendary development there is no embellishment it's a very simple story um it's a story that is told in a historical manner and it is codified as in written down and placed in a codified form in the lifetime of the people who were actually there and saw it take place it's codified in the lifetime of the people who were eyewitnesses of the event and if you you know if dr luke you know who's who's writing about it some years later if he writes it down wrong there's going to be people there that are going to correct him. There's probably you know, 400 or 500 people around the place that can correct him and say, no, you've written it down wrong. It didn't happen like that. This is how it happened. And you know, Dr. Luke specifically um, states how he acted as an investigative journalist to mm. actually find out the truth of everything that he records in his particular gospel. And so the simplicity of it adds... Credibility to the story of the resurrection of Jesus. One of the other things that adds a tremendous amount of credibility to the story of Jesus is who it was that found that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that the tomb was empty. Remember who that was? The, the, The Marys. Yes, it was the women. The women, yeah. Okay. Any thoughts on why that might be a source of credibility for the story?
0: Almost, I, I, I think it's almost because maybe back then, it wasn't.
3: Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly the right answer right there. Because back then, in a court of law, if you're in a court of law, um, a woman's testimony could not, could never be accepted in a court of law. Yeah. Uh, if you had somebody who committed murder and it was witnessed by 100 women, yeah. and no men then you had no eyewitnesses. Yeah. And so this is credibility from embarrassment, basically. Mm. There is no way in a million years, if you were creating a legend, would you have women being the first people to be eyewitnesses of what took place. Yeah. The only way that you would ever admit to such a thing is if that thing actually happened, if it actually took place. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's credibility. It is evidence for from embarrassment. Okay, some of the uh, other evidences that we have. Let's, let's let's think about the tomb that was empty. What did the disciples believe about the tomb? Did the disciples believe the tomb was empty? Y- yes. Yes, because they believed Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Yep. Uh, what about the enemies of Jesus, did they believe the tomb was empty? I uh, yeah, they did. They did because they paid the soldiers a large amount of money to spread a rumor that the body had been stolen. Yeah, which is a very plain admission: the body is not there. Yeah. So both those who believe in Jesus Christ and his most avowed enemies, yeah, they all claimed that they the, all claimed the tomb is empty. Yeah. They just have different stories as to how it ended up being empty, and but they all the claim that it was empty. Yeah, And it's a bit of a stretch to imagine that, you know, you've got a watch, which is 100 men um, of 100 soldiers, you know, that is all asleep, mm. and the disciples get past all of them, and their lives are on the line the next day if they sleep on duty. Yeah, You know? Roman soldiers didn't sleep on duty. Yeah. They'd be executed the next day if they did, and... All of them slept. And the disciples were that good that they could sneak past. You know, I challenge anybody to roll back a massive stone and cart off a body in the middle of the night without waking somebody up. That's just too much of a stretch by a very, very uh, long distance. Anyway, we're going to listen to the story of Jesus, uh, this time in song with Alan Jackson bringing us I Love to Tell the Story.
7: I love to tell the story Of unseen things above Of Jesus and His glory Of Jesus and His love I love to tell the story Because I know tis true It satisfies my longings As nothing else can do I love to tell the story Oh it be
8: Team here at Faith FM want to encourage you to share God's love with those around you To stay positive and to stay connected in this virus season Check on your neighbours, especially elderly neighbours As they
3: may be unable to visit the shops or see family due to quarantines A note under the door or a letter in the mailbox works too If you want to maintain your distance Little things like this make a
4: huge difference to someone who might be struggling to get by You're listening to Faith FM Positively different radio.
3: This morning is Brock Goodall. Now, Brock is the chaplain for Avondale uh, University College. And, Brock, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, Brock, I understand that you're a fellow Tasmanian, is that right?
4: Indeed. Tassie Proud, my friend, Tassie Proud.
3: Absolutely. Go Tasmania. It is the promised land for all those who might not uh, (laughs) realise that yet. Um, and they do have a moat at the moment that they are not, that they are using. So yeah, if you want to go down there and just check out whether Brock and I are right on that one, you'll have to wait a little bit. But um, yeah, uh, Brock, welcome to the show.
4: Yeah, thank you so much.
3: Now, Brock, you're the uh, the chaplain for the Avondale University College, which is based in uh, Lake Macquarie area. So fairly local to us here, where we broadcast the breakfast show from. Uh, This is uh, a Seventh-day Adventist uh, university college that that operates there. And when we first set up this interview, it was kind of earlier in the year when, you know, we were like, well, let's talk about what it means to be a university chaplain. Um, And now it's like, well, let's talk about what it's like to be a university chaplain without having students. (laughs) So things have changed
4: the times and landscapes have certainly shifted.
3: <laughs> so, 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 Brock, um, I do want to ask, just as we sort of begin here, how much has your, how radically has your job changed since coronavirus has hit?
4: Yeah, great question. And look, honestly, it's. it's changed in a huge way but at the same time it hasn't and I'll explain what I mean so usually one of the things that we love you know working here um, at, at Avondale is when the students come back the buzz is real because there's so much movement, there's this foot traffic, there's this you know vitality of having you know young people here all around like it's phenomenal so that whole setting has completely shifted now like I'm here um, at my office at the moment um, and there's no one here <laughs> even <laughs> now there's, there's in the morning, you just see lecturers around and you know, very stuff, and no, there's no one. Um, so it, it's a bit of a ghost town, but so in that respect, things have changed. But, um, what hasn't is that obviously our need to care for our students and our staff remains right but obviously it's quite you know relatively straightforward to do pastoral care when you can physically meet with somebody Uh, but now because of all the restrictions that ability to physically meet with people is out the window so now the thing that presents itself is how do we do pastoral care for staff and students when isolation and restrictions are in place
3: Yeah, absolutely. So how does that, I mean, obviously, we we understand that, you know, a lot of people in ministry are relying heavily on Zoom. Is that your primary means of communication now?
4: Yeah, big time. So Zoom's huge for us. So all of our meetings have obviously moved online to Zoom, but even now student catch-ups and connections uh, are now through Zoom, uh, which is interesting because you would think um, that, you know, students being younger would be completely ready to go and, and very, you know, up-to-date and ready to know exactly how to use Zoom. But it's interesting. A lot of our students are using this sort of a platform for the first time. So a lot of them have used things like um, video chat through Facebook Messenger or things like FaceTime. But, yeah, Zoom, for us in the professional, space is definitely the way we're going. But for students, it's still very new and there's a lot of training that's happening. um, So that now on uh, Tuesday, when classes officially kick back off formally online, they're ready to go and engage.
3: Yeah, you know, if only we'd have been able to look into the future and all bought shares in Zoom before all this happened. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> and, you know, just even this morning, I noticed that a bunch of our transmitter sites are down because they rely on internet connections. And it seems that, the, that Zoom is just absorbing yeah. all of the uh, available uh, bandwidth that is out there. Now, um, okay, so one of the questions I wanted to ask is how much has – okay, so you're obviously ministering to students and to staff as a chaplain. Hmm. how much of the issues that th- people are dealing with have changed and in what ways have they changed before and after hmm. the lockdown? Or is there no change?
4: Huh. Good question. I mean, one of the things that first came out to me, so now where obviously a lot of our... so instead of doing, you know, like our Friday night programs that we usually have here on campus, um, now I'm recording um, devotionals and sending them out, you know, throughout the week to all of our students. And it's funny, I got a comment back from one of our typically distant students. Obviously now all of our students are technically distant, but the ones that sort of started distance. And they said to me, now that everybody's on the same playing field, they said that now they actually feel like everybody else is part of the Averdale experience, if you know what I mean. Like that's been a bit of a bit of an idea that, you know, you come physically on campus here to get an Avondale experience and, and that's where it comes from, you know, you can engage in student life and the spiritual life here on campus, but now we're all forced to communicate in a distant setting, now our distance students are saying, okay, now I'm getting the Avondale experience too, which is really special because now we get to kind of dial up our intentionality moving beyond this crisis to say, how do we keep pastoral care going and be really effective for our distant students? because it is really easy to forget about them because they're not physically here. So one of the issues that this has basically brought forth is to go, cool, this has given us an opportunity to be more effective and more intentional with our distance pastoral care. But in terms of the other issues that are going around, I mean, now the sense of isolation uh, and our mental health concerns are obviously going up. They were already there and already present. But now, I guess, in this time of restriction and isolation, the, the dial's really going up on that. So one of the things that we're being really mindful of is being very intentional with speaking into the fact that even though we're now remote and all in isolation, our counselling services on campus are still completely available. Um, We as chaplains now are really able to sort of speak into the fact that we do more than just Bible studies and and prayer requests. Those things are critical and important, but we're also there just to chat to. So I think having that availability is working really well, but definitely one of the things that we're noticing is that's mental health sensitivity is definitely more present now that's for sure
3: do you find that those students who who have you know been doing distance education the whole way and have been Mm. a part of that program are more resilient to the lockdown than those who have been an on-campus group and now gone into distance education
4: yeah, I mean, just with speaking with the ones that I've spoken to, that are distance students. Yeah, this is this is no difference to them. You know, this is how they've they've typically done all of their study up to this point. They're used to having to study online and study remotely and join the remote sessions and not have other people around to keep them accountable. So this almost is business as usual for them, and that's why I think now because we're dialing up our presence in that virtual platform, now it's actually helping them feel even more included than what they did before. So yeah, totally business as usual for them. Maybe the big way, uh, but it has presented a really cool way to bring about a bit of unity between our on-campus and distant students.
3: Now, you mentioned, you mentioned the chaplains there. You've got a bit of a team uh, that uh, works on chaplaincy at uh, Avondale?
4: Yep. How many... So how many... we've got... Yes, yeah, so we've got... Um, it's a diverse team in that we work at... P- is part of our whole student life services here on campus. So the one that sort of runs that whole space uh, is our director of student services. Uh, so Jen Petrie, she's incredible. So she kind of has her... She's got a bunch of different roles and keeps her fingers in a lot of different pies, making sure that the whole overall student care is taken care of. And then there's me in the chaplaincy space, who specifically works on that direct pastoral care with staff and students. Uh, we have another guy um, named Hayden, who is our res manager and our our, our sports and recreation guy and he's obviously looking after specifically the ones that are in dorms. We have a well-being officer, um, and her name is Renee and her job is to basically walk through our female dormitories here on campus to make sure that they've got some presence. Because obviously me being the chaplain of male, uh, I can have access to our male dorms but I can't have that same presence in our female dorms. So basically we've brought on another member to be able to help in that area which is awesome. And then in addition to that we have our well wellbeing uh, team which look after the counseling side of things so they're the professionally trained counselors that look after things that are a bit more uh, that are outside the scope of just those chaplaincy uh, issues and conversation points so it's a nice big team but I love it because the the campus here is really invested in in caring and that's just our Lake Macquarie campus too and all of that is pretty well replicated on our city campus too so the the Avondale whole community is really invested in caring um, for our students which is really cool. Yeah,
3: that's fantastic, Brock. Hey, um, how? And, and and I guess we're just sort of you know we're looking into the future here, and we really have no idea. Mm. But how much do you think that this is going to change things in the long mm. term? You've got all of these students that have now gone onto distance. Do you think that there's going to be a bunch of them that are going to like you know you're going to be like you know what I like distance, so I'm just going to stay with it, or do you think those that have Um, chosen the campus course, have done so because that's what suits their learning style, and as soon as
4: it's available again, they'll come back to it. It's a really good question and I think in a big way like only time will tell like we said uh, because it's definitely interesting because a lot of people, even myself, when I went to Avondale many years ago I wanted to come on campus and because I thought that was just the option. I didn't even really think that perhaps distance was an option for me. So now that all of our students are now essentially in this distance sector, now they'll have to ask the question, did this work for me? Um, Can I do this? Do I still feel part of community? Uh, And they're they're questions that they'll have to wrestle with. But I guess us here on campus what this has done for for me in particular is really helped me to open my eyes to, to remind myself of no we do have distance people and just because they're not physically here on campus that doesn't mean that we can't partially care for them so the thing that this will do for me and my space moving forward is to be conscious in everything we do of asking the question, okay, but how does this serve our distance students? So we've got a bunch of initiatives here for our on-campus students, but what can we always do to bring our distance students into the mix? So it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting and in how that will actually roll out. Only time will tell, but it's definitely an exciting time anyway.
0: Yeah, Brock, you mentioned that you, the on-campus students, are there still on-campus students at college at the moment?
4: Yes, yeah, so and there's very few because, um, before the, the essential lockdown that we're now in, um, in New South Wales, um, our team tried to look forward and project where things were going. So basically giving our students time to say, Hey, uh, before travel becomes a real tricky point, we really encourage you to go home. And then some directives came through, um, some advice came through to our senior leadership to basically say, okay, no, we need to as best as possible close our, our residential halls. And now we've got, I think off the top of my my head it's maybe 10 or 11 students that are either international or can't travel for whatever reason domestically so it's a small group uh, but there there are still a couple of students here on campus so even the other day because um, the question is how do you care for them when they're in isolation right yeah. so we uh, <laughs> myself and our well-being officer we bought some pizzas and kind of delivered them at the door <laughs> and had a bit of a chat with some social distancing but yeah we've got a few students on here but yeah the absolute vast majority of have returned back home. So
0: currently- the, the on-campus experience isn't quite what everyone expected it
4: to be. <laughs> Not at all. So if you are a first year this year and you, you had some very clear expectations for what your year was going to look like, things have definitely changed. But yes, for us, I guess we want to make sure and be really intentional to be like, you know what, just because we're in isolation, it doesn't mean that we can't still be community and have a really passionate and growing spiritual life. So we typically here on campus do something called Festival of Faith um, twice a year and it's essentially our week of worship our week of prayer. And we're working towards over the next couple of weeks to be able to deliver something like that, um, obviously in a digital context, so that our students and staff can still have those intentional weeks in place, business as usual to a point, but just shifted to our new context. And that restriction and that sort of forcing of... Okay, we have to think differently. While this coronavirus crisis is is scary and it's unknown, one of the good things that's come out of it for us is that now we get to be creative and reimagine what we can do. So those first years that have covered the expecting an experience, we can still deliver that, and you know we can still care for them in a spiritual sense. So yeah, the creativity that's that's thriving in restriction, it's Yeah, it's that side of things is good.
3: Yeah, and I think it's one of the positive things that is coming out of the crisis is that we are learning. Uh, we, we're learning new skills that right. we will not lose, and we're learning That's new right. strategies that we also will not lose. And so we will come out the other end of this much stronger than what we went into it, and much well equipped to, you know, deal with the broader society. Uh, I love what yeah. you're saying about you know the distant students feeling like they are a part of the system now, and yeah. and the the taplancy team that you've got there. Um, is being forced to create strategies that you'll Mm -hmm. now be able to use, you know, forever um, that may not have been, you know, on the top of the priority list, but now they certainly are. And so I I think this is, I think this is good that we look at this as an opportunity uh, rather than just a, um, you know, just a a lockdown, so to speak. Um, Absolutely. Brock, we want to thank you so much for uh, joining us here on the breakfast show this morning. Um, we have uh, we're kind of starting to run out of time now I was going to ask another question but um, we don't have enough time to uh, fit another one in but it's been fantastic having you here on the show thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'd love to get you back on again sometime
4: no worries thanks for your time it's been good fun good chatting
3: fantastic thank you that was Brock Goodall uh, University uh, College University Chaplain Avondale College University here in the Lake Macquarie area and also in Sydney campus as well this is BJ Thomas where no one stands alone
9: Once I stood in the night With my head bowed low In the darkness as black as could be And my heart felt alone And I cried, oh Lord, don't hide Your face from me Hold my hand
10: all the way Every hour
9: I may live In a palace So tall With great riches To call My own But I don't Know a thing In this whole Wide world That's worth. Than being alone Hold
10: my hand Always
4: FM Radio, bringing you peace, hope and certainty in uncertain times.
0: Today is, of course, our very special uh, long weekend holiday uh, special uh, program for you. Double doses of Encounter with God. Um, So, yeah, make sure that uh, you're tuning in wherever you may be. It's always a pleasure to have your company and we encourage you to always Get into the word. Um, this morning we are looking into history, taking a look back at uh, uh, a little bit of something we looked at in April, early April. Um, so I hope you can all get ready for that. We're opening, we're starting with Second Kings. Um, but before we get there, we do have, of course, one of my favorite things in the whole world that I always love, and that is a good old jingle. So here we go. Jingle, jingle. Liam. Yes. Second Kings. Second Kings, chapter 22, verse 3. Let's start in verse 1. Verse All right, then. Okay. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adaiah. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, good. The daughter of Adaiah from Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor, David. He did not turn away from doing what was right.
3: Okay, so let's cover a little bit of historical background because you know me. I love to cover some historical background. The nation of Judah, this tiny micro-nation of Judah, has just come out of uh, 57 years of brutal oppression by their ruling kings. That began with the 55-year-long reign of Manasseh, who really modelled his kingdom on the Assyrian Empire, which was the dominant empire in the world at that particular time. And, of course, we've talked about this before, but the Assyrians dominated the world through... Basically, two things. One, they had a professional standing army, which nobody else did. Everybody else used just to call everybody who was of military age, "Let's come and fight." Let's all get together and, yep. and, and fight. And you bring your farming implements, and you bring a cow as well, so that you get to eat something. And you go to war. Mm. Whereas the Assyrians had a professional army. They had, you know, all the different divisions in the army. They had ranks in the army. They had, um, you know, they had engineers. They had specialists in the army. Engineers. They had specialists who were, would build things. They had specialists in supply. So that was one of the ways that the Assyrians ruled the world. But it went much further than that because these guys were true terrorists. This was state-sponsored terrorism on an international scale. Quite a big impact. Massive impact. The world had never seen anything like it before and probably hasn't seen anything like it since. Mm. Not only were they terrorists and not only would they commit genocide and, and war crimes on a scale that we can't even begin to imagine today. You know, these guys would make Hitler look like a saint. Mm. Uh, any of our modern bad guys, they'd make make look like a saint. They wouldn't go and hide from us like, oh, no, I'm going to escape You know, the uh, war crimes tribunal. They would publish it. Yeah. And they would put billboards all across the empire. This is what we're doing. doing this, this is, is what how we're, we're doing. Do it exactly. This is what we did to this city. You know, we 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 cut off all these people's hands and we cut off their genitals and we put their genitals in their mouth and we, and we you know, build a pile of uh, a pyramid of heads that was you know as tall as the city walls and we you know, mm-hmm. and we cut off their feet and 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 we impaled you know. It just goes on and on and on. How they would brag about the atrocities that they were committing, and it was basically a way of ruling the world through sheer terror. Yeah. What you've got is that the Assyrians invade the nation of Judah uh, just previous to this when Hezekiah is on the throne. Yes. They're defeated there by the angel of the Lord. Yep, And, of course, the Assyrians go back. They... Brag about how they went down to to the land of Judah, and they took all of these cities in Judah, and then they make this very very insightful statement. Snaker makes this very insightful statement when he's bragging about his victories. He says he says, and you know, I was so powerful, I was so strong that I I shut up Hezekiah in his city like a like a like a bird in a cage. Yep, which is the Assyrian way of admitting we got smashed at, at Jerusalem. Admitting defeat. Yes. That's that's the closest thing you'll ever get in the ancient world to an admission of defeat. Yes. Um, You brag about how you actually won. Well, you didn't win. You uh, were absolutely destroyed in that particular conflict. Now, of course, Hezekiah dies, and his son Manasseh comes to power. And Manasseh is like, okay, well, let's look around the empire. Let's look around the world, and let's see who's successful right now. Oh, the Assyrians are successful, so let's run Judah like a mini Assyria. Mm. And that's what he did. The Bible said that, says that he was the worst king who ever reigned, possibly the worst king who ever reigned in the history of the planet. Yep. He made the streets of Jerusalem run with innocent blood. Mm. Uh, this was a guy who put an Assyrian god in the temple of God. Yeah, right. You know, he was he was next level rebellion against God. He's like, okay, everything the Assyrians do, I am going to do. You know, i don't know And of course, sorry, I butted in there, but hold that thought. I am going to come back to it. Um, you often find this. It's called it's called the the, the little dog syndrome. Yep. where the little dog feels like he has to bark louder and bite harder and fight harder because he's a little dog. Yeah. He makes up for his size by just going to extremes with everything and this is what Hezekiah has done. He's made up for his size by going to, like, well, the Syrians go that far. I'm going to go way further and make up for it here in the city. Yeah,
0: yeah. When um, Usually when people go to meet the you know kings and queens, you'd... You, uh, Usually in in modern times, you've got a lot of respect for him, and you like you think yeah, they're, they're a high
3: le- of honor, but a certain level of excitement as well.
0: But I think if you were to go meet this king, you would be terrified. terrified. Oh yeah, have Am you gonna... have you ever met a king? No, I I can I've met a king. You've met the king. Wh- met, which king no, did you meet? I um meet met the only king in Australia. Okay. Did you know that there's a king in Australia? The one in Western Australia? No, that's a prince of the of the The uh, River Province. Province. I've met a king, the king of Yarrabah. Do you know? I've mentioned Yarrabah before. Yarrabah is an indigenous community uh, just uh, east of Cairns, where I come from. And yeah, when when Captain Cook, and when I I say Captain Cook, I mean when all the all the convicts came to Australia, they collected all of the. All the, they, they, they saw these indigenous Australians as, you know, they were intimidated by them. And what they did is they collected them all and from all around the country and moved them to this, uh, sort of area, this town. And it's well out of the way. You've got a, at the moment, they're in complete lockdown, um, due to coronavirus. Um, but yeah, they've got a king named King, uh, Vincent Jaban Schreiber. And yeah he's is the king of yaraba and when i met this king the point i'm getting to when i met this king he's a very he's not your typical king but the fact that he was a king you felt you were in the presence of of someone oh my gosh this person oh my goodness sorry this person is
3: he's he, this is someone really important yeah absolutely well there you go i've i've never met anybody who's royalty before i've come close a couple of times
4: you're listening to Faith FM, Positively Different Radio.
3: So standing, the, standing on a street corner one time, and uh, Queen Elizabeth pulled up in the car just beside me. She was obviously riding in the back seat. She doesn't hasn't driven for herself in public that I know of. Yeah, since uh, she was a truck driver since in the Second World War. Yeah, but ambulance driver. The, I, I can just imagine. Like that was for that's.
0: I can't imagine being terrified by a king no not in today 's
3: world because kings that's the, are, that's kings where are, i was trying to get to with that kings and queens are basically tourist attractions today yeah yeah um they're a, a, a relic from the past that we all love and respect you know it's yeah. it's, it's, it's something that 's carried through from medieval times and and it's just a really i 'm a huge supporter of uh okay so this is this is my personal opinion here right now a huge supporter of the uh of the of the royal family i think they're just um you know anyway um <clears throat> All right, so we've got this king here. We're way off. How did we get so far off topic? Let's get back to our Bible the verse. King. Let's come to Josiah. So you had, you've had, uh, you've had Manasseh. He is just horrific. Yeah. You've had his son Am- Ammon, who comes to power, and he is right up there with his father. And they're looking for a break. You know, the people of Judah are looking for a break, and because they're looking for a break, and and, and Ammon is he's not going to give them this break. And so he gets murdered two years into his reign. They're like, no, execute this guy. And then, of course, all of the people of Judah, they rise up and they take out the conspirators. And once the conspirators are, are all destroyed from this particular assassination, they then put in Manasseh's grandson, a kid by the name of Josiah. He's eight years old. Yeah. How would you like to be ruler of a nation when you're eight years old? But this is a kid who's given his life to God, to the service of God, and so you're going to find a very different response that is going to happen as a result of this. When I was eight years old, I would not have been able to to be king. ruler a king. No. A, rule
0: a nation. I was struggling to get a handle of my brothers, let alone a whole nation.
3: Yes. And, of course, he would have had people who were assigned to be his guardians. Yeah. And as guardians, they would be de facto rulers. Mm. Uh, in his place until he becomes of age. Anyway, uh, verse 3. Let's continue on down through this passage. All right, verse 3. It says, In the 18th
0: year of his reign, King Josiah sent uh, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary to the temple of the Lord. He told him, Go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the temple's restoration. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple of the Lord. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple, but don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men.
3: Okay so an interesting story here and the implication is that you know by the time he gets to eighteen uh, he's no longer under the guidance the rulership of his mentors, he is now starting to rule on his own and he's starting to act by himself. Make yep. his own decisions, be his own man, all of that kind of thing, and so he is engaging himself in the restoration of the temple. The temple has fallen into disrepair; nobody's interested in it. It's had an Assyrian god in it, yeah, um, and so you know it's kind of been a source of wealth. Yeah, it's like, oh, we need some gold. Well, let's go and strip it out of the temple. Yeah, there's lots of it there, and so. He is restoring this building. He is restoring the timberwork, he is restoring the stonework, and things are heading in a good direction. Okay, while this is taking place, verse 8, please. Verse 8. There's before I go
0: before I go on, Dave mentioned a a, a, a lot of names that are very hard to difficult to oh, that's, difficult that's, why, to that's why i gave you this passage <laughs> so a, apologies for all the incorrect so we're pronunciations hilkiah. hilkiah the high priest said to shafan the court secretary i have found the book of the law in the lord's temple then hilkiah gave the scroll to shafan and he read it shafan went to the king and reported your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was
3: written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Let's stop right there. I want you to think about this for a moment. So you've had 57 years of horrific kings. Mm. Uh, Two kings during that time period. uh, Manasseh that rules for 55 of those years. Yes. During that time, the worship of God is basically forgotten. It's been handed down, hand, you know, from uh, um, you know orally, so that Josiah still has some knowledge of the worship of God. Yeah. He knows that he should be worshiping God, and so because of that, he's restoring the temple of God. But it is absolutely mind-boggling to understand that no one had a Bible. Yeah, I want you to try and wrap your brain around that. This is a point in Earth's history when there was one copy. Yes, a single copy of the Bible. Mm. That's it. Nothing more.
0: I don't think there's many things nowadays where there is one copy of it. No, that's right.
3: And everything's got backups. You know, backups of backups. And 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 obviously I would say that there had been backups previous to this particular point but at this particular point there was no backup. Yeah. There is this one copy and the copy has been lost. Yeah. And so Josiah in restoring the temple is really, you know, he's stumbling along in the dark. He's going from the memories and the legends and the information that has been handed down to him orally on what should take place in the temple, how it should operate, what should happen there, you know, all of these kind of things, but he has no book to go by, no guidance. In with, with which to do so. And imagine if this copy had been lost. Yeah. We would not have our Bibles today because, I mean, how thin of a thread, you know, is the knowledge of God being preserved by right here? Yeah. Now, of course, there's every possibility that, you know, this was a copy of the law that was written by Moses himself that they'd preserved all the way down and through until this time. We don't know. Yeah. But that possibility certainly exists. And maybe they had not made other copies of the originals that Moses had made we, once again, we don 't know no, but that 's definitely a possibility, particularly in those days and then of course, you know after this, you have your Babylonian captivity when you come out of Babylonian captivity, you 've got Ezra the scribe, and you know he 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 puts together you know compiles um, you know a lot of the canon of the Old Testament and uh, and pulls that material together, but you know this is this is an astounding discovery. And so here you've got a king who is a follower of God. Imagine this being a follower of God um, right the way through until you're eighteen years old. You've never ever laid eyes on the Bible. There is a rumor that somewhere once there was a book that was the Bible that did exist and suddenly it's found. yeah imagine the value of that treasure. In fact, the most valuable treasure that there is in the world right now, you know what it is? What is it? It's the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. They are the single most valuable treasure from antiquity that exists in our world. Where are they kept nowadays? In uh, Israel, in Jerusalem, in a museum called the Museum of the Book. There we go. And so if you ever want go to go there, visit it, And you can see a copy of it. Absolutely.
0: You can't see the real thing. <laughs> but you can get copies of it. You can get your own... I, oh, I, absolutely. I had a pastor... Um, in Cairns, who who went over to he did a a Bible tour, and he brought back with him the Dead Sea Scrolls, not the real thing, but copies. And it, 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 even in the little jars that they had, he he bought a, a a copy of the little jar. Inside the jar, there were these little fake scrolls, and it was really cool, actually.
3: So yeah, and they're they're kind of vaguely a facsimile. Gave a, the, a bit of an idea yeah. of of what they looked like, indeed. Okay, so if we continue on here, uh, where did we get up to? They find this, they find this copy—the only copy that there is—and of course, Shaphan the scribe comes in and he starts reading it. And um, uh, Josiah, when he hears it, the Bible says that he tears his clothes. Now, yeah. that's something that's very, very unusual. Doesn't happen for very us. Often, no, it's not how. Western society responds to news. Yes. We don't tear our clothes. There's the old colloquialism, uh, tearing out your hair. Yeah, but, but we don't even do that. No, we just say it rather than actually doing we, it. We feel like doing it, Yeah, but we don't do it. No. I could tear my hair out right now. No, we don't do that. But it's kind of similar in a way because here you've got, you know, Josiah, he reads this and he recognizes just how far from God they are. You know, he thought he was doing a great job restoring the temple, getting things back in order, but he had no idea how far from God uh, they had actually Gone during this particular period, and how far they had to come back. The other thing, of course, that he's learning as he's reading through this is that God had prophesied what would take place, what would actually happen if they left off from serving God. And here they've been 57 years since they last served God. This is uh, Back to the Bible.
11: Let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back to the truth. Oh, let's get back to the Bible Oh, let's get back to the truth 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 Oh, if we walk in the light As he is in the light And do our best from day to day he will be faithful to forgive our sins And blessings will all flow our way He has promised the crown of glory And on that promise I'll stand For if we walk in light As He is in light He will forgive this wretched man oh, Let's get back to the Bible oh, Let's get back to the truth Get back back the the Bible. Bible. Oh, let's get back, back to the Bible. Oh, let's get back to the truth. To the truth. Let's get back to the truth. To oh, Let's get back to the truth. So just love the Lord, use your Bible as your sword, and, and love, love your neighbor as yourself. When you, you feel weak and tired on your feet, don't be afraid to, to ask him for help. If you stumble, just kneel and be humble. Forgiveness you ask when you pray. No worries, no strife. On with your life. Christians aren't perfect, just say. Let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back to the truth, let's get back to the Bible, let's get back to the truth, let's get back to the truth, let's get back to the truth, now when you feel, feel the need to plant the seed, share his word and the rest, harvest has come, You say, we well done forever, with, with him, him. we'll be. The clouds, you say I love come my pilgrimage. You fought the good fight and lived in the light forever, little never game. Oh, let's get back, back, back to the Bible. Oh, let's get back, back to the, the truth. Oh, let's get back, back to the Bible. Oh, let's get back. back To the Bible, oh let's get back, back to the truth. Oh let's get back, back to the Bible. Oh let's get back to the truth. Oh let's get back to the Bible. Oh let's get back to the truth. Oh let's get back to the Bible. Oh let's get back, back to the, oh, back back to to the, the truth. Let's get back to the Let's get back to the Bible. Bible.
3: Let's get back to the Bible. Talking about getting back to the Bible, let's get back to our quiz, which is a Bible quiz. Let's see if you can answer this clue. What have you got, uh, Liam? For the next clue on our quiz, where did our quiz go? Someone's getting... stolen our quiz sheet.
0: Oh yeah, it's up here. I put it up. I'll put it up up to producer Shell to, to see the answer. All right. So, clue number four. Elizabeth said to me, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear.'"
3: That's a big clue. That's a big clue. Okay, one eight hundred three two four eight four three, 324 843 or text us on 0491-064-669 if you know the answer. Make sure you save those numbers in your phone. 1-800-FAITH-FM. So that's 324-843. And that way you'll be able to participate in the quiz on a regular basis. Indeed. Don't forget that this Saturday morning... We have small group interactive Bible study class right here on Faith FM between 9.30 and 10.30. Matt Parra and myself will be presenting that. And that's going to be just a great opportunity to uh, dig into the Bible, study together and interact in a way that will be somewhat similar to the way that you're able to do it um, at church, which is going to do it over the air because that's the way we do it these days. Yeah, okay, good. so Liam, what have yes. we got uh, uh, for our next part of this story? Where are we
0: up to? What verse we, did we get up to? We just finished verse eleven, so I'll read verse eleven again and keep on going from there. Okay, so when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to, Hil- to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Ochbar son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Azariah, the king's personal advisor. So this is what the king said to all of these men. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah. Enquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbar, Shepham and Asaiah went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet Huldah. She was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Hahas, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place, and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah, "'who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him. "'This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, "'says concerning the message you have just heard. "'You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord the Lord, "'when you heard what I said against this city and its people, "'that this land would be cursed and become desolate. "'You tore your clothing in despair "'and wept before me in repentance. "'And I have indeed heard you,' says the Lord." So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I am going to bring to this city. So they took her message back to the king.
3: Okay, so here you've got this interesting story where, you know, God has obviously said, look, if you turn away from me, this is the consequences of turning away from serving me. Um, And, you know, consequences for our actions never change. Whatever we do, you know, the Bible says what you, see, what you, what you sow is what you will reap. Yeah. And when we turn away from God, there are, you know, things that are just, you know, God is there to protect us, to look after us and so forth. But we say, God, we don't want to have anything to do with you. Then God's hands are tied and we're at the mercy of Satan. Yeah. And really, this is what is taking place here in many ways where God is saying, look, um, you guys have turned away from me and because of that you know you are now at the mercy of Satan and because you are at the mercy of Satan then bad things are going to come and this is what's written in the Bible and of course when they read this they're like, wow this is this is this is really hectic stuff yeah um, there's and there's some pretty strong things particularly in the book of Deuteronomy that describe what will happen when people turn away from God. And so, you know, Josiah's read this, he's recognized that there is disaster coming. He goes to the prophet and is like, Well, what's the what's the story right here? And the prophet's like, Yep, that's absolutely what the Bible says, and that's actually exactly what's going to happen to this place. But because of your faithfulness, it's not going to happen in your lifetime. Now, what we're particularly looking at here today is the power, the transforming power of God's word. And in many ways, to really understand the transforming power of God's Word in this particular passage, we need to continue reading. Um, And I don't know that we've got time to really get into all of the details, but when Josiah reads the Bible, or the Bible is read to Josiah because uh, it was rare in those days for a king to be biblically literate, tearing his clothes and going to the prophetess is not all that he does. No. Even when he gets a message back from the prophetess that says, look, it's not going to happen in your time, he's he's, he's not in a situation where he goes, like, oh, that's great, it's not going to happen in my time, so I can sit back, relax, um, enjoy a good party, enjoy a great kingship, and uh, move on from here. No, he continues the rebuilding of the temple, and he reinstitutes the services of the temple, and in doing so, uh, they gather together people from all across the land of Judah. They have, you know, the greatest. Um, they have the the, the greatest uh, Passover feast that they have had, you know, since the history of like you know King Solomon or King David. You know, going right the way back. Not only do they have this for the nation of Judah, but they also invite the nation of Israel. Yeah. Now, this is very significant, very, very interesting because most of Israel, of course, is in captivity, but there are some left. And most of Israel, which has been in idolatry since its very inception, Mm. the northern nation of Israel never, ever served God. Yeah. But there always was people in the northern nation of Israel who would serve God. Yeah. And they would go to the nation of Judah to go to the temple and to worship there. Yep. And so, uh, as a result of that, there were still some people they found up in the north Mm. who still wanted to serve God. And they have this great Passover ceremony, and it's just amazing. Um, And they enjoy it so much. They're like, yeah, let's do this for another week. Let's do this for a week. Let's do it for another week. It's like they get together for camp meeting for the first time in, you know, in, in, uh, well, Josiah's what now, 25 years old. So. 25 plus 57. Come on, quick maths. What does that add up to? Um, 75, 80, 100. A lot of years. Sounds about right. Yeah. Something like that. I'm useless at math. But a lot of years since they have had a Passover. In fact, this would be most likely the only Passover that these people have ever experienced. There is extremely unlikely that somebody went to a Passover under Hezekiah and lived all the way through to go to one under Jeremiah. Not Jeremiah, um, Josiah. Yeah. Uh, It's possible in today's day and age that something like that could happen. Uh, But back then when the average lifespan, people died mid-40s. Mm-hmm it was possible even back then. You do have some long, long lifespans. But this transforms not just Hezekiah. It completely transforms the nation. And that is the power of God's word. The power of reading God's word is that it transforms people's lives. And, you know, we heard a great testimony with Ka- Caitlin here earlier. We all have a testimony that we can share of the transforming power of God's life in us. This is uh, actually the Passover song, Carolyn Cobb.
5: There's a promise in our veins, but it's faded by all these years and shades. Send the prophet Send the that by sunrise we will no more be slaves Take a lamp, take the blood And paint it on our doorways at night
3: Question
0: of the day.
3: Question of the day. Time before we do. Quick reminder that uh, this Saturday morning, nine thirty, ten thirty. Small group interactive Bible study right here on Faith FM. If you're on the delayed broadcast, make sure you get the app so that you can be a part of that particular program. That's Faith FM Australia app. Question of the day. What do you got for us? Question of the day. What does the Bible say about
0: organ donations or, or donating organs or Blood, such as yeah, blood transfusion, that, yeah. Blood, blood, yeah. blood
3: transfusions and organ donations. That whole uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses do not practice this. No. Um, everybody else does, and this is something that's sort of a little bit interesting to me because the passage of scripture that is used to state that we should not. Uh, donate blood or organs is Leviticus chapter 3 and verse 17, where it says, It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all of your living places that you eat neither fat nor blood. Yes. That's what the Bible says. And so some people have read that and they've gone, Okay, that means that we cannot donate blood because the Bible says that you cannot eat blood. Yes. That's a stretch. Yes. And with the uh, utmost respect, let me say this to my Jehovah's Witness friends, the Bible is speaking about eating, not Literally donating.
4: Eating, now, when you, when you eat mouth.
3: something, of course, the Bible is speaking about something that goes through your mouth, into your digestive system, and uh, then out through the other direction. The uh, that's a very, very different process to injecting something into your veins. Yes. In fact, organ donation and blood transfusions were not something that existed in biblical times, and so for that reason, God does not address those particular issues. But yes. we have to look at the underlying reason as to why did God say don't eat blood yeah. and don't eat fat? My big question is, and maybe somebody who is a Jehovah's Witness can give me a call and answer me this question um, on 1-800-324-843, is why obey... Leviticus 317 and not do blood transfusions but disobey Le- Leviticus chapter 11 where the Bible says you can't eat dead pigs yeah that's a question that I've sort of got in my mind never had the opportunity to ask it maybe somebody can answer that one for me however why did God say don't eat blood and don't eat fat the answer is very very simple when you well we know why why God said don't eat fat because it's not good for you. Yeah, that's right. You eat fat, you're going to get fat, your arteries are going to clog, and you're going to die. Um, and, of course, blood is where the disease is. If you get a disease, of course, they're going to take a blood test and look for that disease. They're yes. going to look for it in your blood because that's where the disease is. And so yeah. basically the Bible is saying when you butcher an animal, drain out the blood because that's where the disease is, drain out the fat because that won't be any good for you, and you can eat what's rest. This is This is all about living longer and having better health. Yeah. Now, if you need a blood transfusion, the principle that the Bible gives is living longer and having good health, so you need to have that blood transfusion. Yeah. If you need an organ donation, it's exactly the same thing. In fact, as uh, Liam pointed out during the break, the very first organ donation ever performed was performed by God Himself. You find that in Genesis chapter 2, where He took a rib and He made Eve from the rib out of uh, Adam.
0: Yeah, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a sleep. While the man slept, the Lord took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man
3: okay so the bible here doesn't really address organ donation or blood transfusion in the modern sense as we understand yeah, it today yeah. uh, but the principle here is the principle of good health and the purpose for good health is length and quality of life and using someone what someone
0: else's is- someone else has produced, to create life or extend life for another being.
3: Okay, so I believe that we all have a moral obligation here in Australia to opt in to the organ donation uh, program or be a blood donor like Liam is on regular occasions and let's participate in that. However, I do need to say this. There is an organ uh, um, replacement program that we must all be a part of Every single one of us needs to receive an organ donation and that is we need to have a change of heart. Indeed, We need to receive the heart of Jesus Christ. We need to receive a new heart and become like Jesus. Let's all receive that organ donation today.
8: Lord, I want to be more like you. I go throughout this life But sometimes inside of me There seems to be such strife I have a heart that's often hard And often can be rough Lord, I pray from you a new heart You've promised heart, I don't deserve the mercy and the love you can impart, that you gave your life so freely on the cross at Calvary. The sacrifice. you had Give me my way
3: Question of the day that has come through. What is that question?
0: Question
9: of the day.
3: All right. So, what is your opinion,
0: or what is the, the the Adventist belief about the death penalty or corporal punishment?
3: Okay. My opinion is irrelevant. Yep. The Adventist belief is irrelevant. Or the what does the Bible say about corporal exactly. punishment? Exactly. The, the Bible is the Bible only thing that is relevant punishment? in this particular case. Um, And in all cases, the Bible is the only thing that is relevant. So let's have what the Bible says. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill. Yes. Plain and simple. Yes. End of story. Yes. We don't need to go further than that. We touched on this yesterday with euthanasia. We did touch on it yesterday with euthanasia. this is a bit bit different. But this is different. And the reason that it's different is because the death penalty existed in ancient Israel. Yeah. So how can you have thou shalt not kill and a death penalty operating at the same time. A lot of people ask that question. They say, well, the Bible contradicts itself right here. But I'm going to tell you, the Bible in absolutely no way, shape, or form contradicts itself on this particular point. It, it mentions that it happened. Yes. but it And God commanded it to happen. It was part of the laws of the theocracy of ancient Israel was the death penalty. Yes. Okay, so how do you actually how do you actually justify these two? Okay, it's very simple. Uh, you've got to look at the form of government. The form of government in ancient Israel, beginning in the time of Moses and extending through until the Babylonian captivity was a theocracy. Yep. yep. And a theocracy is the only form of government where you can have a death penalty. And basically it works like this. As human beings... We never have the right to take another person's life because when you take another person's life, you close their probation. Now, that's a big theological term that simply means you close off their opportunity of ever being saved. Um, You've you've shut that for them, if, if they're lost, of course. And so we don't have that right because we can't read a person's heart, we can't read their mind to understand you know, whether it's appropriate for their probation to close this particular point or not. So a human being can never take another human being's life because that is the result of what will happen. However, God can take another person's life because God can read our heart and God can decide whether a person has uh, you know, committed the unpardonable sin or whether not. Whether they're guilty or not guilty. guilty. That, that's right. God can read a person's heart and see whether they are eternally lost and is able to take their life or not. Mm-hmm. Now, God in the Bible has a long record of, you know, taking people's lives in many different ways. You've got the story of Korah, um, Dathan, and Abiram, where God causes the ground to open up and swallow them. Mm. He uses an earthquake in that case. Uh, you've got the story of uh, Elijah who's sitting on a mountain top, and 150 men come to arrest him, and God pours down fire on them. Yes. So there are a number of different ways that God uses. To take other people's lives. Another example would be where God sends Saul to go and to wipe out the Amalekites, the mm. Amalekite genocide. And once again, it is God doing this, but God is working through humans. Yes. But it is God's choice, it is God's call, it is God's decision. And under a theocracy, this is why you can have a death penalty, because under a theocracy, you can have a situation where no mistake is ever made, either in relationship to a person's guilt, or in a relationship to whether they will be saved or lost by taking their life. Yeah. So a theocracy can have a death penalty. It is the only form of government that can have a death penalty. Outside of the theocracy, there is no opportunity for a death penalty. And so we don't live under a theocracy. We live under a democracy. Yes. We have a secular government, which is separated from the church. And under a democracy, and, you know, the other go- there's there's no theocracy that exists in our world right now. It yeah. hasn't existed since the Babylonian invasion. And so um, death penalties are not the way to go.
0: Well, unfortunately, everybody, that brings us to the end of our program today. We hope you've enjoyed it. Um, now, j- just so you know, we are going to be back to, to normal tomorrow, so don't worry about that. Tomorrow, it is back to the live breakfast show right here on Faith FM. So make sure that you come back. For a new week, a brand new week, brand new show, and we'll be having a great time. We hope you all had a very safe, long weekend, and we hope that the rest of your Monday morning and most of your Monday is uh, one to remember. Have a wonderful time, and as you go through your day, please do not forget to remember to talk faith, live faith, act faith, and you will go strong in Jesus Christ. Stay safe, everyone.
8: i you.
12: The treasures would make me happy that were the very things that binded me Goodbye, old man You promised you had what would fill me There were the very things that robbed me Leaving my heart completely empty Goodbye, old man Goodbye, old man I hope not to see you again I don't want to be your friend Goodbye, old man has gone, behold the new has come, with you I never did have fun, goodbye old man, I thought I walked in liberty, I thought your treasures would make me happy, they were the very things that binded me, goodbye old man, you promised you had what would fill me, they were the very things that robbed me, leaving my heart completely empty Goodbye, old man Goodbye, old man I hope not to see you again I don't want to be your friend Goodbye, old man The old has gone Behold, the new has come. With you I never did have fun Goodbye, old man Save Him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be reconciled to our Father now. I am in Christ, and in Christ I am free. His law is the law of liberty.